All right, friends. Good evening. Good evening. It's good to see you guys. <clears throat> we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna slow down a little bit and only cover one book tonight. <laughs> it just happens to be that that book is Deuteronomy. So here we go. As we begin tonight, I want us to think about again context. We talked about there are a couple different kinds of context that we want to consider. One that we're not going to talk about tonight is literary context. Because we're moving a book at a time, or sometimes a couple of books at a time, literary context, what happened in the passage before and what's happening in the passage after, isn't really as helpful for us to consider at this level. As we get into passage by passage like we're doing on on Sunday morning, you're hearing Pastor Cody mention literary context all the time. You're just not hearing the phrase, let's consider literary context. All right, so, but for here tonight, let's consider first of all our historical context. You see that there in your notes? Our historical context. Deuteronomy is picking up where numbers left off. So that means we're in 1400 BC still, right? The first generation, um, the first generation of Israel that came out of Egypt, they have died, right? God delivered that, eight, that, that generation out of Israel. They came through the Red Sea. They went to Mount Sinai. They received the law. They went across the, the prom, or they went across the wilderness relatively quickly. They come to the edge of the Promised Land. They send the spies over. The spies come back. The majority of them with a bad report. They choose to believe the bad report, not trust the Lord, and say, "Let's pack up and go back to Egypt." Right? It's better to go back into Egypt where we were enslaved and we didn't really have our own land and we didn't really have our own identity and we were kind of under somebody else's boot. But hey, we didn't have to worry about these giants and getting our own land and all this kind of stuff, right? And so they chose not to obey the Lord. They chose not to trust Him. And He says, okay, let's go back into the wilderness. Because you see, they said they said things like, well, what's going to happen to our kids? They're not going to survive. They can't take care of themselves in this new land. You know what God says to them? You know that generation that you're so concerned about? They're going to go into the promised land and they're going to they're going to thrive. Well, you stay here until every last one of your generation dies. Except for Moses. Or well, Moses doesn't even make it. Except for Joshua and Caleb. Because they chose to trust the Lord. Right? So here we are now, 38 to 40 years later. They're standing on the edge of the Jordan River. They're ready to go in the Promised Land. Moses has been disqualified from going into the Promised Land because he misrepresented God to the people. We can talk about that some other time. That is a painful story. Um, but before he goes up to Mount Nebo and gets to at least view the promised land, he has some parting words for, um, for the people. So again, we're, in the, we're camped in the plains of Moab, just like we were back halfway through the book of Numbers, ready to enter the promised land. And Moses is going to give three speeches, which are recorded here. This is going to over, overlap a little bit, but now let's consider our redemptive history. right? Our redemptive history historical context. Deuteronomy also serves as what you might call a covenant document. Right? We've talked a little bit about covenants. We'll talk more about covenants tonight. Uh, but Deuteronomy serves as a covenant document for God's people. It's similar to a marriage covenant. right? With, uh, although this is much more involved. It involves blessings, but it also has curse clauses in there. We'll talk about what those are. Um, but it also has witnesses, etc., Future generations of Israel will keep coming back again and again and again to this book. 
you're going to hear this book mentioned throughout the rest of the Old Testament and a lot in the New Testament too. You see, like if we if we cut ourselves off from the Old Testament and say that it's not relevant, we don't really understand the New Testament at all. All we're left to do is to bring our own context and our own thoughts, our own baggage to, to bear on every every passage that the New Testament has to offer. And we just say, well, that's what it means to me. No, it's not that that's what it means to me. It's this is what it means based on everything the Old Testament's telling us. So we'll see that happen uh, throughout the rest of the Bible. Israel has grown into be, to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, as many as the grains of sand on the shore. They have been redeemed from slavery, constituted as a nation, brought into covenant with Yahweh. Uh, they've been given good laws. They've been given a tabernacle, this tent of meeting, where God's presence dwells with His people. Think about that. And we've talked about what does it mean for a holy God to live in the midst of an unholy people. Right? So uh, we've seen all these things. And nearly all the promises that God has given to these people have been fulfilled. Except for the promise of a land that's theirs. Right? The promise was given to Abraham. Even though you're going to live as an exile in this land, your descendants are going to come back here and it's going to be theirs forever. Alright? So we see this. And so they're ready to possess the land of Canaan. So Israel receives this marriage license, this this wedding document, because now they are married to the God of the universe. And And they are ready to occupy this land, this land flowing with milk and honey. However, there is this looming threat of a curse. Right? Because again, we said a co- that a covenant, the biblical covenant, has blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And so there is this looming threat of a curse should Israel break the covenant. Uh, overall, the book really is one that has this, this, this feeling of hope, anticipation throughout it. And so what we're doing is we're thinking back to what is already, and we're looking forward to what is not yet. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like the New Testament, doesn't it? So, now, let's get to the theme. The theme for the book of Deuteronomy is this. That the covenant Lord, the covenant Lord loves and is faithful to his covenant people. The covenant Lord, and you see these, these two blanks in your notes. The covenant Lord, is uh, he loves and is faithful to his covenant people. Therefore, they, his covenant people, should love and be faithful to him as well. Um, Deuteronomy emphasizes the covenant and how each party must be faithful to their respective end of it. Moses lays out the covenant laws, the Ten Commandments, right? Um, And he lays them out again. We saw them back in Exodus. We're going to see them again here in Deuteronomy. And then he explains each one and he applies it to the nation so they can better understand not just what the commands are, but how to live them out. Isn't that good? God takes time to explain to his people how to obey his commands. Um, so he then, uh, Moses then highlights Yahweh's faithful, promise-keeping love consistently throughout. That's a theme. It's a string that runs throughout the entire thing. Furthermore, he calls the people to love Yahweh with everything in them, to heed the word of God, to be quick to obey it, 
if they want to keep the land that God has given them. Okay? So now, outline with pivotal text. Um, you'll see there, there's kind of two different ways that we can look at the, this book. Certainly we can look at it from the standpoint of the three speeches that, that Moses gives here. Right? And you see that there. But then also, in addition to it being just three speeches, you can also see it in the terms of being a covenant document. Right? It can, you can, we can view it in, um, in the same way that we would view any Near Eastern ancient covenant document from that time period. Okay? And so you see all of that right there. Preamble, historical prologue, so on and so forth. We're not going to take time to go over all the details of that tonight. Because we've got to cover a whole book, right? So let's, let's keep going. Um, so before we get into these theme texts, though, I want to ask us a question, though. When we get down to it, what is a covenant? What is a covenant? Right? In biblical terms, and you, there's another blank there in your notes, this is a divinely ratified, solemn agreement. It's a solemn agreement between two parties with terms and conditions that can only be broken upon the penalty of death. So it's a solemn agreement. Again, it's similar to a marriage covenant, right? There are oaths and promises made. There's a ceremony, witnesses, documents, symbols of the marriage, like rings. And in this case, there are, there are external markers that, that, that are present there. Um, and, so, and the covenant is unbreakable until one of the parties dies. The major difference here is that this type of covenant has, again, the clause curse. Anyone that breaks the covenant must be put to death. So now that we know, we're reminded again what a, what a uh, covenant is, where have we seen covenants so far in the Pentateuch? For the record, again, what's the Pentateuch, right? Think Pentagon, right? Five sides. Pentateuch, five books. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So where have we seen this so far, this idea of a covenant? Well, we saw one with Adam, right? Does it, do we see the word covenant there in Genesis 1, Genesis 2? No, but we see, uh, we see uh, expectations. We see uh, external markers. We see um, blessings promised. We see um, uh, also promised curses should there be a breaking of the covenant. So there, this is a covenant. That's what this is. So we see one with Adam. We see one with Noah after the fall, after the flood. Uh, we see one uh, as well with Abraham, uh, where Yahweh promises that Abraham's descendants will be a great nation, occupy the land of Canaan with Yahweh reigning over them. A quick way to remember this would be God's people in God's place under God's rule, right? So there's, there's trouble brewing back here in the corner. <laughs> I'm trying to get his answer. The answer is uh, okay. All right. So, uh, so we've seen, we saw where God makes these promises to Abraham. And then in a covenant ceremony, what happened? Abraham was supposed to uh, take the sacrificial animals, split them in two, set them along a path. And he's supposed to walk the path because he's the, uh, obviously he's the lesser of the two parties, right? But then Abraham falls asleep. And as he waits, he sees this fire pot that's floating through the through the, the, the path, this covenant pathway here. So what we see is that God takes upon himself both sides of the covenant and says, just like these animals have, may the same happen to me and more so if I do not keep up 
both ends of the covenant. Right? Praise the Lord. He keeps the covenant for us because we can't. Um, so we see this with, uh, with, with, uh, with Abraham. Then we saw next when we, we move over to Exodus, we see these things being passed on to Abraham's descendants. I wish Brock was here tonight because we got to talk about how covenant blessings being being passed on. And I'm so thankful for him teaching us that from the book of Genesis. Um, so we see that there. Um, we see the Ten Commandments and the other laws in Exodus chapter 20, verses, chapter 20 through 23. And then in 20, Exodus 24, people took an oath upon themselves, having, sprink, having blood sprinkled on them to symbolize the curse of death being upon them, should they break the covenant. So this is another covenant ceremony here. The covenant's being extended to the nation. This nation is now being constituted. And the beauty of it is, friends, that Deuteronomy, this book gives us all those things. It gives us the covenant obligations, laws, blessings, curses, all in one document. Look at the kindness of God. Do you see now why the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament keep coming back to Deuteronomy? All these things that have been handed out over time throughout the last four books are now contained all right here in one place. It's beautiful. Uh, so that's a blank there, right? All this in one document, right? So now, theme texts. Let's get to our theme text for tonight. So first, let's talk about chapters 1 through 5. Chapters 1 through 4, they do something. They review, right? There's a blank in your notes. They review Israel's relationship with Yahweh thus far. <clears throat> Moses focuses on, God, on Yahweh's covenant-keeping love, his faithfulness to his promises, made to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord had multiplied them, again, uh, to be more than the number of stars in the, in the sky. See that in chapter 1. He set the land of Canaan before them to enter and possess. Uh, again, chapter 1, verse 21. Uh, Yahweh had rescued them. He'd given them good laws and all these other things because of His love. We see that in chapter four, and for and not just for His because of His love, but for His glory. See that also in chapter four. Therefore, Israel has to uh, has to keep His laws so they would retain these blessings, namely the land of promise. This is the key piece. Of, the, of this covenant. And we're going to see this as a huge piece of the covenant and as a, a huge symbol uh, as we move forward. All right? <clears throat> so you see chapters 1 through 4. Then chapter 5, Moses gives the Ten Commandments again. And I want to stop here and just think about this. Deuteronomy it actually comes from a Greek word. Two parts. Deutero, meaning two or second, right? And namos, meaning law. Deuteronomy, it's a second law. It's not a new law. It's a giving of the law again. It's the second giving of the law. And so that's where we see this. Moses is giving the law again here in chapter 5. And then he uses chapter, chapter 6 through 26, right? Gives the law in chapter 5 and then takes chapter 6 through 26 to explain the law, to expound upon the law, to uh, to expose all the uh, all the, the right understanding of the law, and he does that to apply the law to Israel right where they are, right here, going into the promised land at this point in time. Okay, so he even apply, helps them to apply it 
This way, God's people knew how to live out the Ten Commandments in their place in history and in redemptive history. We'll talk more about the law in a second. So let's move on to chapter 6. Chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Um, let's get a look at, really, I would say probably not just one of the most famous verses, or most famous passages in Deuteronomy. Probably one of the most famous passages in the Bible. Right? Deuteronomy. Um, and uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. So while you're turning there, um, let's just say this. That God, throughout this book, repeatedly tells His people of His initiating, faithful love for them. You see that in, verse, in chapter 4, chapter 7, chapter 23, chapter 33. He keeps coming back to it again and again and again. And so in... We see this, though, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. Who can read that for me? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. All right. Anybody remember what this is called? It's the Shema. It's the Shema, right? The Shema, and it means literally to hear. And that's where and it says that. It's called that because it says there in verse 4, hear... O Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But that word hear, Shema, doesn't just mean for you to passively sit there and let and just let sound waves enter into your ears. No, it means literally to, to listen with readiness to obey. To listen with readiness to obey. Right? That's there in your notes, with readiness to obey. In this case, to believe that Yahweh is the one and only God and to love Him with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Now let's take a, let's take a moment and just kind of break down these words. Heart, soul, and strength. The word for heart in Hebrew culture means the mind, the will, the emotions, the thought life, the character, everything that makes up what the New Testament calls the inner man, right? So... Literally, to love Israel, for every Israelite to love Yahweh, it means to do so with everything in them, right? Remember the, the song, uh, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, praise His holy name. Didn't know you were going to get music tonight. Ah, there we go. Um, comes from the Psalms. Uh, so it says that, right? So we see the heart, and we see soul. The word for soul means literally breath or passion. So it means not only to with, with all of your insides, but it means um, with, with every ounce of oxygen that you take in, with every moment of your day, you are to love Yahweh. Right? And then the word for strength literally means muchness. I love that. Right? Muchness. Force. Or even the word very. You might think, well, how does that grammatically make sense? It's Hebrew, folks. All right, let's not let's not get caught up on on this. Uh, so, um, so in, in everything that that an Israelite sets his hand to do, he is to love Yahweh with it. Can you hear the emphasis of the whole of everything that an Israelite is loving Yahweh? It, again, to kind of the summary, I guess you could say, and we see this in the notes. Love Yahweh your God with all your inner man, all your inner man, all your passion, all with all your muchness, all your force, all your very everything. Alright? So and then in verses six through nine, Moses looks at 
And we ask this question, what does it look like then for someone to love God this way? What does it look like when somebody loves the Lord like this? Verses 6 through 9. Who can read that for me? These words which I have commanded today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and in the way you may lie down and you rise up. You shall bind them as your sons on your hands and they shall be as fine as on your forehead. You shall write them on the door post of your house and on the gates. Amen. Alright, so what does it look like? What does it look like to love the Lord as He's commanding here? It looks like a life where the Word of God is central to everything. It looks like a life where the Word of the Lord is central. The central focus. It's the very heart of a person. right? The one who loves the Lord, the Word of the Lord is his heart. It reminds me of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the seat, uh, stand in the place of sinners, or sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is on the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. You can't delight in the law of the Lord unless you delight in the in the the Lord of the law. Does that make sense? That's what it looks like. Israelites were to store up the Word of God deeply in the very fiber of themselves. From there, the Word could spring forth and affect their lives in every area. Verse 7 literally says, you must carve or sharpen them into your sons. It is to be a topic of discussion all the time. For the lover of God, uh, when the lover of God sits, walks, lies down, rises up, the Word of God is to guide them. In everything they do, uh, in all that they see in verse 8, verse 9 says the word of God will govern the home and the city of those who love him. The love of God means to be saturated with his word in the heart, in the mind, the tongue, guiding of the hands and of the eyes, uh, ruling the house and the city. The word of God is to be pervasive in the life of his people. We need to be people of the word. That's what it looks like to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Did you know that love is called for? God calls for love from His people in Deuteronomy eleven times. I think even we even gave you a footnote there that just lists out each one of those times. Look down at the bottom of the page: uh, Deuteronomy six, ten, eleven, thirteen, twenty-two, thirteen, uh, nineteen, twenty-three, ten, or thirty, sixteen, and twenty. Uh, it's, it is crazy. It's all over the place, right? Um, so in application then, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is, they were trying to stump him, right? The, one of the lawyers, one of the experts in the law comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Where does Jesus go? The Shema, right? You see that there in your notes. He, Jesus turns to the Shema. You're not going to school the Lord of the of the Lord of the Law in His own word, right? He wasn't just grabbing for some sentimental line. He's not trying to escape his questioner's trap. Rather, by using that key text, he is referencing everything we just talked about as a means of loving God the way that the way that God demands, right? So, how 
deep is the, is, should our understanding be of just, just that one little piece of Scripture? Right? That's why it, it, seem, it can seem tedious at times when we start slowing down on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or any time and looking at just this one verse. But the more that we're trained under it, the more we see that there is to see. Right? All of this. It shows us that God's Word is inexhaustible. Every time we read this, this Word, even if it's something we've heard, like the Shema, hundreds of times, there is always more to learn. Never sit back and think you've got it all figured out. For the rest of our lives and for the rest of eternity, we have so much to learn. So let's move on. Chapters 6 through 26. As mentioned earlier, these, these chapters are an exposition. They're an exposition of the law, of the Ten Commandments. Moses is showing Israel how to live them out in the promised land, right? So we see exposition so that we can learn how to live them out, right? There are many laws that we could recognize, uh, like prohibitions against uh, murder and theft. But can I just be honest with you? There's a, there's a lot of laws in here that would seem really strange for us to try to, to put into practice today. Right? Laws on how to mourn, laws on how to build cities, how to deal with disobedient children, even who gets to carry sticks on the Sabbath day. A question that's burning in all of our minds, I'm sure, right? So then the question is, how in the world do we make sense of these laws today? Right? What do we do with these things? Can we just disregard all the Old Testament commands as something that was, you know, us for Israel back then, right? Back then, over there. And not for the church today. But see, the problem is, if we do that, where's the dividing line? Does that mean that we throw out the Ten Commandments? Where do we draw the line? So how do we understand? How do we make sense of these laws? So really, to to understand the answer to that, we need to consider that there are two kinds of law being discussed here. Two kinds of law. And you see this there in your notes. We see prescriptive law and descriptive law. Alright, let's take each one of these in turn. Prescriptive law is the foundational law, and that's a blank in your notes, right? The prescriptive law is the foundational law rooted in the perfect, unchanging character of God. The Ten Commandments would be a great example of this, right? They are written into the very fabric of God's universe, and no matter what culture at any point in time and any any part of this planet can say, it doesn't matter. God's word and His law, His prescriptive law, stands, and it cannot be changed. What changes is the context in which these prescriptive laws are lived out. That's the key. And with that said, let's think. Let's move from prescriptive law to descriptive law. We have prescriptive law and descriptive law. Descriptive law is the way that prescriptive law is applied in a certain place and time. Again, descriptive law is the way that the prescriptive law is to be applied in a certain time and place. So these chapters, chapters 6 through 26, and parts of Leviticus for that matter, are full of descriptive law. The way that the nation-state of Israel called to be a geopolitical entity thousands of years ago on the other side of the world was called to do this before the birth of Christ, might I add. This is how they were supposed to put the prescriptive law into practice. We, the church, 
this side of the cross, 21st century AD, apply the prescriptive law differently. In other words, and you see this there in your notes, our descriptive law looks different. Our descriptive law looks different. Mainly because Jesus Christ has fulfilled all that the nation state of Israel was supposed to be pointing towards. He is, Jesus is, the true and better Israel who always obeyed. And so we see now this shift then because of Christ in the application of prescriptive law. It's still the same prescriptive law. The outworking of it just looks different. Does that make sense? So we've got a little extra time. I, I want let's let's think about maybe uh, let's think of one example. So one of the one of these laws is that the people of Israel were told not to mix different colors of yarn in order to remind them that they were holy and set apart from other nations. Well, we're we're really not concerned about mixing different colors of yarn today. Um, even though we are still concerned with being holy. We have other ways to remind us of our distinction from unbelievers around us. And we talked about two external markers, right? Two covenant, uh, covenant uh, ceremonies that, that, that reinforce and remind us of the, the difference that, that we have from the rest of the universe. And that is baptism and Lord's Supper, right? These are, these are elements uh, that's, that remind us of the uniqueness of the church, Right? We talked about, I think we talked about uh, fruit of the Spirit and how those are, that's fruit that the Spirit bears uh, in us as we, by faith, seek to obey the law. So, but we, when we talk about that, we do, have, we do have external markers. Yet you also, though, you see uh, several sexual prohibitions that are still in force today because, uh, well, for, for lack of a better explanation, that because adultery is still forbidden in the, in the Mosaic Law, in the Ten Commandments. So we see where there are some things that are still that are still held, but then there are things that we see that change because again Christ fulfilled uh, what Israel is supposed to be. So again, the outworking is different. We can we would love to talk about which ones are which, and we can talk about that. Um, just not right now because we have a lot we got to cover. I'm going to leave that to Pastor Cook. Ask all the difficult questions you want. Go for it. Uh, Augustine of Hippo said it this way uh, in his, uh, in his um, what was it called? Uh, the Confessions. Um, he says, The truly equitable law of Almighty God is the law by which each age and place forms rules of conduct best suited to itself. Although the law itself is always in every place the same and does not differ from place to place or age to age. Another place in the Confessions he said this, Surely it is never wrong at any time or, or in any place for a man to love God with all with his whole heart, with his whole soul, and his whole mind to love his neighbor as himself. So we still read these chapters then. Why do we still read these chapters? We do these things to learn and to be reminded of how to apply the essence of the law this side of Christ's death and resurrection. Does that make sense? Right? All these things are written for our example, right? the New Testament tells us. And, and with that said, then understanding more about how these things were applied back then helps us to understand how the prescriptive law is to be, to be carried out now. Okay? So now let's move on. Chapter 10. Chapter 10, uh, verses 12, or verse 12 through chapter 11, verse 1. 
So talking more about this essence of the law, Moses then tells the nation as he's speaking to them about how Yahweh intends the law not to be burdensome, but he intends for it to be good. The law is not burdensome for us, but it is good. Uh, Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, it says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Truth be told, we are like, we're like children. We don't know what's good, right, and true. If, if, you, if you are kind of questioning that, take a look outside, right? Just flip on the news for a, for a moment or two. We, without the, the light of God's revelation, we don't really know what's good, right, and true. I, I don't know. Apart from Christ, I don't know what's good, right, and true. Praise God that He graciously stoops down. He condescends to show us His what is good and right and true through His law. We'll pick up on that when we get to the New Testament and talk about about Galatians and how the law is our schoolmaster. It points us to Christ. We need to understand the law to understand how good it is to be in Christ. Um, so he enlightens us with his good law. Um, of course, with even with this electing love of God, there is responsibility, right? God is sovereign over all things. Man is responsible for his actions. But even in this, we see that the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. God is primarily concerned with your heart. And He doesn't just want to be a part of your heart. He wants it all. Right? He wants our love. All of it. He deserves all of it. He made us. He wants to be... Uh, he, is, he is not glorified when someone just keeps the law externally, but they do so from a heart that's prideful and self-righteous. Right? Because that kind of person, their heart is really far from the Lord, even though they have an external appearance of keeping it. Yahweh wants the whole being of, the, of a man, of a woman, because their actions follow through from their heart. Right? The heart is the treasure, and out of that it comes our actions. Thus, the essence of the law is to love God and to love others. And then to let that love overflow into action. If you perceive that God, if you sorry, if you perceive God as He really is, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, great, mighty, awesome, upright, compassionate, then how would, can your heart not not fall in love with Him? We and then also agree with His character, and to do so, not just all. Oh, I see what he's going for there. That makes sense. I agree. God's right about this. But that the totality of who that I of who I am gets swept up in who God is. And, and I want not just to agree mentally, but I want to agree in my life. I want each step to be in line with him. Because I love him. And I love him because he first loved me and gave his life as a ransom for us. Alright? So, this is this is what this is about. Let's look, look over at chapter 27 and chapter 28. It says, if, 
if Israel devotes their whole heart to Yahweh, and you'll see, I think there's like a, a table there or a chart of some kind. If, uh, if, if Israel devotes their whole heart to Yahweh, then the covenant provides some great blessings. The, the land and the land being bountiful at that, right? But if, the, but if Israel fails to keep its heart pure and to wholeheartedly serve the Lord, then there are curses. And they're pretty serious curses as well. First, we see that the land is unfruitful. It's unbountiful, right? It doesn't produce like what they what they expected it to, right? It's no longer a land flowing with milk and honey. And if it continues, not only is the land not bountiful, but they are actually God promises you will be removed from the land. And it's heartbreaking when we see at the end of of 2 Kings that they're removed from the land. But even in that, actually in chapter 10, or chapter 30, verses 1 through 10, here in Deuteronomy, again, I love that God is saying all of this before it happens, right? He says there in chapter 30, we don't have time because it's like 10 verses, uh, but he says that even when they're taken away, he will bring them back. Right? Even in his wrath, Yahweh is gracious and he will complete his plan of redemption. In fact, if we're considering the redemptive history connection here, and this is there in your notes, right? If we remember this, types and antitypes and things like that, removal from the land of God's blessing is the same as what happened to Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3. Right? Adam and Eve sin, they're removed from God's, from God's land of blessing, the Garden of Eden. So I want you to see this. God's plan of redemption is that he's bringing his people back to Eden. That's what this whole story, the, the totality of the Bible is about. God's people sin, they are removed from, the, from his presence because he is no longer pleased with them. Yet God, before any of this happens, He purposes Himself to redeem them, to be His people again, and to bring them back to this place where they are His people in His place under His rule. Praise God that we get to be a part of His people. This is good. Back to that condition where they can again worship Him with sincere hearts. Back to this place, this new heavens and new earth, where, they, where all temptation towards sin is gone. It's completely removed. And back to um, a state of mind where we'll never have to fear being exiled from God's presence ever again. This is what the entirety of the Bible is about. And so with that, before we finish tonight, I want us to look at chapter 18. We kind of skipped past it as we've been kind of looking through theme text, but I want us to come back to chapter 18. I want us to see something here. Uh, this is the last book from Israel's first prophet. And as, and as uh, he is kind of winding down here, Moses prophesies. Remember, the first prophet is prophesying about the last prophet, the greater prophet. Let's look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18. We're going to look at verse 15, and then we're going to skip over to verse 18 and 19. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, 
from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Now let's scoot on over to verse 18. Um, it says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among, their, from among their brethren. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Who is this prophet? He, this prophet that will deliver God's final and conclusive revelation to mankind. He that will be uh, the one that all the Old Testament prepares the way for. And what all of the New Testament is about. Can you, can you guess who that is, friends? Jesus. That's right. The Sunday school answer, right? It's a pretty safe bet in this room. Uh, so we see that, right? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high prophet. God has revealed... Uh, God has revealed His holiness. He's revealed our sin, our need for redemption, and His provision to save us by grace through faith. That's the good news. Which we are told here in Deuteronomy 18, the last words, right? We must listen to, right? We must listen to these words. So as we conclude then, as Moses fades from the scene, and this is in your notes, as Moses fades from the scene, I don't know about you, but as I've, I've, I, every time I teach Deuteronomy, uh, I get a little a little sad, right? Because you think about it, who who's the editor basically for the entire Pentateuch? Moses. So if you're reading through from the beginning, you're like, oh Moses, bye buddy, you know. So, but here's the thing: as Moses fades from the scene. The true and ultimate author, his story continues on, right? As Moses fades from the scene, Yahweh's story continues. And so, with that, we're going to continue to we're going to continue on with the seed of the woman in battle against the seed of the serpent. We're going to continue on with Yahweh's post-fall recreation of the universe. We're going to continue on with Yahweh's covenant faithfulness. We're going to continue on with more typology, right? Types, anti types, woohoo, right? Exciting. We're going to continue on uh, and understand the gospel better because we're reading through the Old Testament together. All right? So, uh, two things, uh, two recommended things to look at as we close. One's incredibly long, and we're not going to read it. It's Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 20. Beautiful passage. And uh, we can look at how uh, it's fulfilled in the New Testament, right? The phrase is like, the, the command which I give you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off, nor is it in heaven. You should say, who can ascend up to heaven? All right? this, is, this should sound familiar, right? Uh, especially if we've been going through uh, First Corinthians. Um, so but we're going we're gonna to hold off on that one. I want us to look, though, at Deuteronomy 32, verses 45 through 47. Deuteronomy 32. Verses 45 through 47. While you're going there, um, both of these passages are from Moses' last speech. So these are the last words that Moses says to the people. Right? You want to think about, man, these people, and that this is this is a generation that's now two generations removed from Moses, right? Moses is old, right? And this new generation, they're all under the age of 40 or so, right? So they, I mean, Moses has been a fixture in, in their life since birth, 
right? Everybody knows who Moses is. He's like that grandpa that everybody loves, right? The one that always has gum, you know, something like that. Um, so, but as we read through these, I, I'm sure you're going to, and I want, I want to encourage you, read both of these at home. We'll read one tonight. But both of them are just filled to the brim with that, with meaningful application for us as we consider where we are now on this side of the cross. Now let's read that, that one passage together. Chapter 32, verses 45 to 47. Who can read that for me? Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel. He said to them, Take to your heart all the words with you which I am warning you today, which you, have sh- which you shall command your sons to observe, carefully even all the words of this law. For it is not an idle word for you to indeed lead your life. And by this word you will prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to assess. Okay? So, simply put, the word of God is good. And it brings life to those who hear it with readiness to obey. Friends, choose life. Choose life that you may live because life is found in God's Word. Let's let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for today. Thank You for Your Word. It is true. It is good. Lord, it is life to us. We we know that faith comes by hearing, by hearing the Word of Christ. So Lord, may we be a people who live according to the Word of God. May we be people of the book Lord, not that we would just understand it, but Lord, that we would we would listen to it with readiness to obey, that we would seek to apply the Word of God to every area of life, that we would be a community of people that remind each other of the Word of God, that we may apply it together, that we may love one another. And Father, not just that we hear, not just that we obey, that we apply, but Lord, that we would teach. Lord, you have given us a command to make disciples of all nations. Lord, we see that even here, certainly with our children. God, help us with the children, with, with the children, uh, whether they're biological children of ours or whether they are uh, children as part of this community that we are a part of. That we, as as a family, that we would commit together to entrust this good word to them. To train them according to the word so that it will prepare for a lifetime of faithfulness. But Lord, would you remind us again and again as well that there are, there are many in our community and in this world that are spiritual orphans that need spiritual parents, people to bring the gospel to them to train them up, to raise them up and to send them out. Lord, you, we have seen that happen again and again in our church family over the years. Lord, may it not just be with a, with a select few. Lord, may each of us be disciple makers that, this, that Callahan would not look the same and that the world would not look the same. Lord, we, we, don't, we don't want to pretend that we are we have something special that no other church has. Lord, we are we are part of the kingdom. We uh, we are not much in the grand scheme of things. Yet, Lord, you have commanded us 
And you, you will. We know that you promised to provide everything we need to do that. And so, Lord, help us now. Help us to understand, to apply, and to teach. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The challenge before you go. I want you to think about what's something new you learned tonight. What's something that you, old that you were reminded of tonight? Uh, we've just added another book to our to our, our uh, scope so far. So I want you to think about briefly, briefly, what does the Chronicle of Redemption look like thus far? Put it on paper. I'd love to read it. All right. So put it on paper. Keep charting this out. And as we add new books, add them to the Chronicle. It keeps going on. It keeps getting better. We keep getting closer to the coming of the Messiah. So. And then lastly, how can you share something that you've learned tonight with somebody in your daily life? Okay? So before you go tonight, I want you to share with somebody something either something new that you learned or something old that you were reminded of. And again, uh, what's the how can we do the look at the story that uh, what's unfolded so far, and then how can you share this with, with people that are in your daily life as well? Thanks, friends. Have a good evening.